You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie, and today we are so excited to welcome Adrienne Shirk to talk about her new book, Heaven is a Place on Earth, Searching for an American Utopia, and she will be in conversation with Amanda Montel. Adrienne Shirk is an essayist and memoirist. She's the author of Heaven is a Place on Earth, Searching for an American Utopia, as well as And Your Daughters Shall Prophecy, Stories from the Byways of American Women and Religion named an NPR Best Book of 2017. Shirk was raised in Portland, Oregon, and has since lived in New York and Wyoming. She is a frequent contributor to Catapult, and her essays have appeared in The Atlantic and Atlas Obscura, among other publications. She teaches in Pratt Institute's BFA Creative Writing Program and lives at the Mutual Aid Society in the Catskill Mountains. Amanda Montel is a writer, language scholar, and podcast host from Baltimore. She's the author of two critically acclaimed books, Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism, and Word Slut, A Feminist Guide to Taking Back the English Language. She is also the creator and co-host of the podcast Sounds Like a Cult. Amanda's books have earned praise from the New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Kirkus Reviews, and more. And Amanda is currently developing Word Slut for television with FX Studios. Cultish became an indie bestseller, was named one of the best books of 2021 by NPR and other outlets, and was a Goodreads Choice Awards top five finalist. Amanda's writing has appeared in Marie Claire, Cosmopolitan, Teen Vogue, Refinery29, The Rumpus, and others. She holds a degree in linguistics from NYU and lives in Los Angeles with her partner, plants, and pets. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Um, I'm going to go ahead and and just share a little bit um, from the very first um, chapter of Heaven is a Place on Earth, um, and it's from a, a section called Utopia Notes. The pursuit of utopia is, at its heart, about our relationship with time. Utopians sit around dreaming about the beginning and the end as a way to decide what to build in the present. What kind of human community will heal the scars of the past and ensure a brighter future? Which systems or relationships do we wish would last forever, but will only ever be temporary? What will the end be like? And is there an end? And should we make it look like what we imagine the Edenic beginning looked like, if ever there was one? There are other factors, of course, to each her own utopia, but when the particulars are wiped away, the common questions are always temporal. Book writing is similar. When I started working on this book, I was 29 years old, and by the time I finish, I will be 32, a three-year period where my own responses to these basically rhetorical questions would at once be fulfilled and rendered obsolete by the end of the process, which, like all books, and all utopias for that matter, has no real end. Before I was conscious of this being a book, I had been aware for some time that I was writing about American utopian communities, 
I had been reading, watching YouTube videos, visiting communes, staring at my smudgy laptop, lost in my own personal utopian yearnings. I was writing a lot, reams of things that I referred to, even in the privacy of my own mind, as just notes. And I had finally amassed something like 120 individual word files titled things like Utopia, Nashville, Utopia, Bruderhof, Utopia, Woman House, etc. Each of these files contained floating narratives, orphaned thoughts, direct experiences, embarrassing disclosures, desperate prayers, voyeuristic observations, rants, passages from books, stolen photos, copy and pasted emails. I watched as the files piled up. I kept thinking that any day now a shape would start to coalesce. I kept waiting for the notes to build toward the kind of legibility that I so admired in other books about utopianism. But instead, I just kept on with the notes. Utopia, Caliban and the Witch, Utopia, North American Phalanx, Utopia, Soul City, on and on. A friend of mine finally suggested that I just print out all the writing and look at it. So I did. And that was when I was 29. I was sitting at my desk over the hot stack of freshly printed writing. And suddenly I thought, shit, this is my book. All of this stuff, all of these little things that I just kept thinking were the precursor or the thing that was eventually going to make way for the real book, in fact, was the book. This was all I had to work with. And it was what I had had the whole time. It was a powerful moment, but its power lasted only as long as I could stay out of its way, which was not very long at all. By that point, there were 150 pages of words which had been doing their own thing for years, creating a form, synthesizing information, telling a story without my own purpose or plan to guide the way. And yet I failed to heed its inner logic, this interior intelligence of the writing. And instead, now that I had printed it out and had really started working on the book, I thought, excellent. Now I can discipline this writing into what it's supposed to be, a playful but straightforward social history of American utopian experiments. There's a funny parallel between this moment of writing a book about utopian experimentation and the act of utopian experimentation itself. If I had listened closely to my own words, the ones that I had already been writing, I might have known that sooner than later. A utopia is often only as good as its ability to be just out of reach, slightly beyond the understanding of its makers, eluding authorial intent. When a utopia becomes too self-conscious, too sure of itself and its aims, too top-down in its execution of a vision, it tends to teeter, to eat itself like an Ouroboros collapse, terrorize, and become the butt of its own joke. Thank you. Shit. <laughs> I feel really attacked and spoken to. Oh Likewise. <laughs> Likewise yeah. in your work. <laughs> wow. I wonder if you want to try to start a physical manifestation of your utopia and your ideologies. I will buy a ticket and show up uh wow yeah wow relatable i'm just processing through my own process which regarding what i'm working on right now which sounds very similar to your process with 
this book that you're putting out now. Uh, yeah, so I'm just uh, taking a moment to reckon with that. Um, that's incredible. Yeah, I, th I think a lot about um, just human beings incredibly fraught relationship with time and the fact that we are like just miserably conscious of our um, ephemerality, ephemeralness, what's the suffix <laughs> of our transience. And, um, and so we do so many things to try to um, assume control over this fact and over our lives, knowing that like doom awaits us. And I feel like, you know, yeah, it, our, our utopia of choice, right, is trying to write, like get everything down in like the perfect way in the form of a book. And some people's way of asserting control is like forming a compound in the woods and trying to like come up with all of the answers and rituals that will satisfy this just like profound and unitchable itch. <laughs> um, it's so fucking accurate. Is it okay to curse on this podcast? <laughs> I assume absolutely. So. <laughs> I feel like absolutely. Yeah, podcasts are not governed by <laughs> FCC conventions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, yeah, sorry, I didn't even ask you a question. I just like uh, pontificated at you for a second. Um, yeah, I would love to hear more about your process, actually. I mean, you articulated it like with a lot of specificity and, and beauty and vulnerability right there. But yeah, I would love to hear more about that push-pull of, you know, having all of these thoughts that maybe like for so long you thought were really disparate or not the book itself. And then coming to realize like, oh, fuck, no, this is the book and leaning into that what may have seemed like a lack of organization before, like what was that process like? And how did maybe the book uh, like become actualized in that process? <laughs> I appreciate the question. And I have really similar questions um, actually for you and the way that you write and structure um, your books. And I think for me, the way that that actually ends up coalescing is time. It's like a very deeply temporal process because I don't enter into books, this one being right about, you know, a sort of a study of, of, of American utopian experimentation. And, and the first one um, being, again, a very idiosyncratic study of different American women prophets and mystics and like makers of religious movements. Um, I don't come to those subjects as a scholar or a journalist. <laughs> um, I come as a writer and a dilettante um, and a kind of student of my own questions and, and whatever kind of materials or methodologies are available to me or being developed as I go. And so you know, I don't ever have the experience of, of really feeling like I know exactly, you know, what it is I want to say, or even what it is I want to find out. It really forms from a sort of obsessive attention or interest in something and letting that obsession peel out over time. And it is literally in the, the accumulation of findings and also um, 
the, the accumulation of just my own writing, which for me is very much so, you know, a form of thinking, like there's a lot of thoughts I cannot even arrive at um, unless I'm writing, you know, that there's actually something in that process that's very revelatory, but again, sort of over time. Um, and so it often feels like this sort of wild experience <laughs> of accumulation um, that requires kind of constantly returning to the, the, the mass <laughs> of stuff and scrying and, 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 and trying to divine in a way constantly like, you know, what, what, ha what, ha okay, what, what are the rhythms? What are the, what are the echoes? What are the, like the themes, you know, what are the things that keep repeating and then beginning to kind of build a structure or think about a structure from there. Um, you know, so that's, that's, that's sort of how that ends up looking and as, as a, and feeling as a writing process. Um, I think one of the tyrannies, and I, and I don't know if you feel this way at all, um, especially because of your own, you know, background as a linguist and also just like thinking, you know, through, through thinking through different disciplines, like your discipline as like a writer and then your you know, discipline in, in your academic experiences. Um, but the tyranny of, of, uh, of writing nonfiction um, is that there's this assumption that, uh, that, you're say, that you're trying to say something, <laughs> right? <laughs> Unlike, you know, so novels and collections of poetry, you know, <clears throat> have the ability to be read um, as something kind of all in and of itself, right? It's mm -hmm. not, they're not delivering a, um, you know, a single idea um, and, while nonfiction is obviously deeply idea driven, there is this way that, you know, there's this, there's an aspect of it for me always that has in some ways like nothing to do with um, wanting to deliver a single idea. In fact, the act of writing is sort of um, the process of like, learning or discovering something myself. Um, and, and, I, and I'm always really interested in capturing that, including that. Um, um, and, and, and I think in some ways I end up betraying the convention of nonfiction, which is that like, it is often the case that um, while you reader may have sat down thinking that I had something to say, what happened is you, you actually just kind of sat down with me <laughs> for a while to think, to kind of pick up wherever I was at <laughs> in my, you know, in, in my, in my inquiry. For a, but I love for a that. <laughs> but that's the thing is like, I, I aspire to write a kind of nonfiction that almost feels like fiction, um, whether that be because the storytelling is fast paced or because it feels really voicey or because I'm just like, inviting a reader along for a ride that I myself don't even feel like I'm piloting, <laughs> um, which sounds mystical, ironically. But yeah, I mean, I feel uh, with my first two books, I felt um, in part comfortably guided and in part uncomfortably imprisoned by a very like precise thesis that I had to communicate. Like I start with a thesis and this is like advice that I give to 
you know, up and coming nonfiction writers or nonfiction writers who like want to sell a commercial book or who just want to like optimize their writing for like, I don't know, for, for a general audience, like people exactly, they like want to really like learn something and they want like a high concept thesis and actionable takeaways. And I get that. Like I, I, I want that too. Uh, or at least I did before I started writing this way. <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah, with my first two books, I sat down and I came up with either a thesis or like a conjecture because with Word Slut, my first book, that my mission was very clear cut. It was like, I need to communicate the field of feminist sociolinguistics to a mass audience. T tiny little low stakes task there. But no. like, I was like, okay, these ideas are like kind of already here and I'm putting my spin on them and I'm curating them and I'm applying them in ways that an academic wouldn't. Um, and then with cultish, my sort of like theory was, ooh, like language has to be kind of like the ultimate power tool for a cult leader. And I'm not just talking about like Jim Jones and Marshall Applewhite type cult leaders. I'm talking about like the quote unquote cult leaders that we're all influenced by every day, like our soul cycle instructors and our social media gurus and the world. And our MLM and our MLM yeah. heads. Yeah, hun, huns or whatever, boss babes. And so I was like, I don't know how that happens, but my guess is that because like language is the medium with which we construct our reality, like it must be true. And this type of like cult language must show up in places we might not otherwise think to look. Um, so I had like a mission, but two books in, I'm like sick of that because the truth is that like, I, I always wanted to be this type of writer who's, who's, um, driven by their curiosity. And I, I never intended to like be a linguist or even be a journalist. Um, because my, yeah, in college, like I, I studied linguistics. Um, but I kind of thought that was just going to be like this fun, silly, nerdy thing that I did. I'm glad that I was able to incorporate it and uh, incorporate it into my writing. But I think my, my like soul wants to do more what you just described. And my soul wants to read that type of nonfiction too. That's really sort of like almost genre bending. And that's the type of thing that I'm working on now. Um, yeah, what are you, can you tell me a little oh, bit about sure. the book that you're working on that you just recently yes. sold? Sure, yeah. This one's essays. This one's called The Age of Magical Overthinking notes on modern irrationality and uh every chapter of the book uh well <laughs> i just said i feel uh, imprisoned by a thesis but i do like to at least have a motif um each chapter in this book is dedicated to a different cognitive bias or theory of magical thinking or type of irrationality from the sunk cost fallacy to the halo effect to the ikea effect you know there are like hundreds and hundreds of cognitive biases that have been described. And I picked my most interesting ones or the ones that are most interesting to me. They're not mine, they belong to us all. Um, and I uh, explore them, like how they show up in the age of information as it's called um, and sort of uh, reckon with, um, yeah, how they manifest in society and how they sometimes hurt us um, and cause conflict, but also how they're kind of fundamentally beautiful as well and how like we as human beings are necessarily delusional 
um, and how we can kind of, I don't know, make the most of it. Clearly my elevator pitch is not down pat. It will be in two years. Um, <laughs> I'm loving this, this, this Odyssey elevator pitch. <laughs> And perhaps it, it captures in some way, you know, the style or, or like the aesthetic of, of, of the desired, you know, inquiry or like, yes, yeah. the, the, you know, the, 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 the modality. Totally, um, totally. Um, yeah, it's like, you know, sometimes, or at least in my experience, like you set out to write something that has a very like definitive elevator pitch although it's always harder than it sounds to come up with the elevator pitch um or like the flap copy or whatever uh and then sometimes you're just like I don't fucking know I just feel very curious about this kind of thing and so I find myself yeah taking a million iPhone notes and I don't really know but like talk to me in two years because I swear it'll be something <laughs> totally no I I yeah I relate um, and I'm very excited um, about this particular project, and and it's um, it's 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 multivalent. <laughs> um, yeah, this it's multivalent look at this at this very like fundamental aspect of our of our daily lives, um, which I think actually is also you know very much what cultish does as well. Even in the even in as much as 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 you experience that or writing that as as you know very thesis driven um, or conjecture driven, um, you know, there is this sort of wonderful associative quality where we are kind of constantly, you know, being given some, some tools and ideas, but then like um, being invited to like apply them to this, this, this wide array, you know, of arenas in our lives. Um, some of which, you know, we might read in the book um, and think like, oh, that's not me. That's, you know, that's this particular, um, that's this particular cult or this particular religion or this particular group. Um, but then, <laughs> um, but then at any moment we might be invited in the pages of that book to actually a much more, you know, benign or familiar, um, you know, setting or context to which we totally belong. Yeah. Um, and we're being invited to kind of imagine that, you know, we're, we're subject to the same, even in that context, the same questions or the same, um, yeah, this, this, the same bench, the same benchmark or the same rubric to consider. Yeah, the um, same vocabulary. The same vocabulary. Um, yeah, well, okay, so I, I'm curious about how you, um, think about utopia and of course like how you think about Americans relationship to utopia I obviously think a lot about uh our relationship to cultishness as I like to say rather than cults cultishness which pervades all kinds of spaces um but like how do you how do you conceive of like Americans relationship to things like perfection and aspiration? And why do you think um, our culture in particular finds itself having this very, very consistent relationship with um, the, the attempt at utopia? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of different, I mean, I think there's many different reasons. Um, one that feels sort of like low hanging fruit, but which um, feels worth, you know, beginning with is, you know, that there's this way that the sort of idea or concept, um, or at least an, an idea, a historical idea that the, that the concept of the creation of such a nation as this um, 
was this was about this kind of renunciation um, of of one's uh, of one's past, of one's um, yeah, of one's identity, of one's uh, you know affiliation or belonging to um, you know some other nation, some other place, some other lineage. Um, the people who you know were were instrumental in in creating and architecting that concept in that context were of course like the most you know privileged um the, the the most privileged sort of like global citizens so you know white european men um kind of sitting and and looking out and deciding upon the, you know the, the 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 principles upon which to 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 create as though from scratch um you know an entirely uh new existence based on this sort of renunciation um this autonomy um and so there's this you know there's this there's this idea um that kind of haunts the edges um of this particular society and then there's also you know the sort of like extremely grim you know, underbelly of of what even allowed for that um, idea or that wish um, to exist, let alone its actionability, and at whose expense, um, you know, that wish was was manifested, at whose lives um, and bodies that that wish was manifested, and so it feels like um, you know all of that all of that matters in regards to this question because even in the ways that that has this like this awful again kind of like haunted residue um there is nonetheless this way that like these ideas or or this identity um of being a part of a kind of like culture of refusal and renunciation persists um and 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 the idea that one can be one can be made new, one can be self-made, one can one can, you know, rest oneself from a long lineage and erase the trail from whence they came and um, and become, you know, a, a kind of like entirely new being. You know, this this sort of like myth or this idea that that, that that's possible, not just on an individual level but also corporately, you know, is this very sort of fundamental you know, idea um, that sort of lurks, that, that, that lurks here in this really particular way. Um, and so that's part of it. Um, and then part of it too is also just this sort of like a culture, a modern culture formed around, you know, the, 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 the idea of the free market. So the idea of just like endless, endless possible innovation, endless possible growth, endless possible, you know, reversals or U-turns that one can make, um, which again is sort of like loaded with all kinds of lies and, and, and costs and, and human costs. Um, but, you know, is, yeah, is just a part of this sort of like cultural muck that we're a part of. And so the idea, um, that one could possibly and is perhaps poised constantly to be able to um, recreate the world in which they live, recreate a kind of like new, yeah, a new, a new society, a new culture, a new framework, um, you know, is, is this very like living, um, 
idea. And, and so it's not as though utopian experimentation is in any way a, a, um, an exclusive, you know, US American byproduct, but it is this really, and has been this really like focused laboratory um, for that kind of thinking, partly because of this like very freaky um, and very particular ground upon which, you know, all upon which this like haunted nation emerged. Um, and yeah, and, and I think too, um, you know, this sort of, this like very potential lethal optimism that feels very deeply US American um, to me, which I think is an outcropping of, of, of the things I was talking about before. Um, something about this sort of culture of, um, this particular kind of culture of, of hope or optimism or progress, um, this particular relationship to capitalism, um, which is this sort of like engine or this backdrop of, of ideas of progress um, or hope or improvement, um, you know, that, that, that's, that that's also like a really powerful element um, to the way that sort of utopian experimentation or ideas play out um, in this country. Um, it is not only lethal, the optimism, the hope, it has many permutations, um, but it has this, um, but I guess I lead with that, you know, this idea of the lethal optimism because, um, because it calls, yeah, because it calls all of the activities, everything that's ever happened here, um, and, and, and even every, every, you know, um, every desire to kind of counter the ills that happened here, <laughs> you know, it, it calls, it calls all those motives into question. Um, but that feels like a really important feature or a really important context um, for, for, yeah, for the, for the American orientation toward utopia. Definitely. Yeah. One of the most humbling lessons I learned early on in my research for cultish was that uh, the quote unquote type of person who finds themselves uh, 12 years into Scientology or, you know, uh, I don't know, in, in, you know, strung up in a mansion somewhere like worshiping a shaved head guy in a robe or whatever it may be is not desperation or intellectual deficiency or um, being particularly downtrodden. It's really this overabundance of idealism that is so intrinsic to the American spirit, the American dream. Um, and I think it was funny because when I was writing the book and I would tell like my American friends that I was writing a book about cults, obviously their eyes lit up because there's this American fascination with cults, um, both the earnest and the voyeuristic. And when I would tell my European friends that I was writing a book about cults, they were just like, why? <laughs> like, what? Who cares? That is um, so interesting. <laughs> that is so, that as a lived experience, as, a, as, a, as, as an anecdote, as anecdotal evidence of- as market of, research. Of, yeah, of like two different kinds of responses. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that's so stark? Yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, well, I, I can I can go to the etymology. So, uh, you know, the word cult um, has taken a very specific trajectory in American English. Um, er, the earliest iterations of this word had a pretty innocuous meaning. Um, centuries ago, it just meant 
offerings to win over the gods, homage to divinity. Um, and then over the years, cult came to describe uh, just a churchly classification, like a religion or a sect. Um, and in French, the word cult still, like, I don't fucking speak French, but the word cult there, the equivalent, um, still means sect. Um, it doesn't have this really sinister connotation. It didn't take on those darker undertones in American English until uh, the really like the 20th century when the emergence of so many groups we now might think of as cults, like, I don't know, Jews for Jesus and Scientology and the Church of Aphrodite and just like all the groups that came up during that time, a time that some scholars call the fourth great awakening, um, that, that sort of spooked old school conservatives and Christians. And so then cults came to be associated with like heretics and quacks and con artists, but then- And mass suicides. Then, well, not until the Manson murders and then the Jonestown massacre and the media coverage of those events, which I mean, particularly Jonestown was unprecedented and has not been repeated since, thankfully. Um, yeah, those, those events and the media coverage of them put them on, put cults on the map as something that all Americans should know about and that we should all fear. But then of course, in the seventies, as soon as cults became scary, they also became cool. And that's why we have words like cult classic and cult followed. And now the word cult can apply to anything, depending on the context from QAnon to Glossier. <laughs> so um, it, it really reflects our cultural, our very fraught cultural relationship to ideas of community and spirituality and identity and meaning and, you know, all these things that, that your book talks about, that my book talks about. And um, yeah, so uh, wow, long-winded answer, but I, yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting that this uh, sort of toxic positivity that has in some ways contributed to a lot of American progress has also contributed to a lot of uh, existential suffering here. <laughs> and, 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 and material loss and despair. Uh, um. yeah. <laughs> I would love to hear about how you incorporate more research-based um, writings with the personal, like what is your personal relationship to Utopia, um, for those who dare not to know, and uh, how do you approach like incorporating the personal with the more journalistic or the more like curiosity forward? <laughs> I love the phrase curiosity forward as a, as a mode. Um, yes. I, 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 wish I could give an answer that sounds less uh, sort of like improvised and idiosyncratic than this. Um, but the reality is that I use and rely on autobiographical narrative as a primary medium in a lot of work that I do and have been doing for a long time. It is sort of the material that I begin with and it's not um, that I use actual specific narratives um, or sort of arcs uh, um, that I decide upon in advance from my own life, um, but literally sort of the the experience um, of writing from reporting from the present in the first person um, is is sort of my my mo. Um, and, and not just as a, um, not just as a tool, but also like as an aesthetic experience. And so um, 
the reason that that matters is because um, what it allows and what it or what it what it sort of makes possible or forces um, is that whatever the the material or the subject is that I'm actually interested in um, and and performing research about um, is something that is deeply personal um, or is issuing from a place that is deeply personal, which I think is true for anyone writing or you know about a particular subject or researching obsessively um, about a particular subject. There's some kind of personal context. Um, it becomes really easy and immediate for me to be able to kind of reveal that in text because my orientation is to actually sort of play my hand pretty quickly um, and sort of work from the space of the personal context um, and extended to the sort of bigger picture from there. Um, it is often not a choice I make in advance. Um, for instance, like, is it, <laughs> is it appropriate for me to, um, to, to use or make use of the autobiographical in relationship to this particular subject? It's like, yes or no, doesn't really matter because I'm going to anyway. That's literally, that's just how we're gonna do it. Um, and the appropriateness or the utility um, of the relationship between those things will just have to be made sense of as I go. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about this book, um, I think when I look back at like my whole body of work beyond this moment, you know, there's a lot of questions that are really consistent, which is that like, I've, I've been interested in, in the way that people um, create worlds um, and sort of world build um, in ways that issue from sort of like religious beliefs or political convictions um, for a long time. Um, and I've been interested in what the sort of like results or catastrophes or fruits are of those different experiments. Um, I've been interested in that um, in a variety of different contexts um, as a part of like urban and, and architectural history, as a part of um, religious history and feminist history. Um, and as a part of, you know, again, sort of somewhat self-identified uh, lineages of, of, of utopians, of, of, of communities of people who really believed or really wanted to create kind of a new um, context or a new world um, from which to live that in, you know, however foolhardy um, might have the ability to kind of improve um, or deepen the meaning of their lives and the lives of as many people as they could extend it to. And, and so, you know, there are these questions, I think that, that have, um, that have been with me and these interests that have been with me for a long time and they sort of express themselves at different points with these different subjects. This particular book, you know, I think emerged or became something that I, I really needed to write um, because or at a moment when I think my own life felt extremely unmanageable and unsustainable. Um, and, and so I had all this, I had all this material and all this interest, but at a certain point I was like, I actually just also need an, a practical outlet to actually take some notes about how people have managed to create um, or, or failed to create, made attempts to sort of world build outside of or, or, or through the various like social and fiscal precarities of capitalism. Like I actually just need some really concrete evidence 
um, to sort of distract me as I try to figure out how to survive in my own life. Um, and so in a really, in a really immediate way, I think the personal um, elements of the writing and the research um, became very intimately related. Um, and then I would say, you know, in, in, a, in a simpler way, um, the way that I actually end up blending those things um, is that a lot of my research is really embodied. I like to go places. I like to visit people. I like to be on the ground um, and actually be a part of or inside of how something is operating. Um, I like to talk to people. I like to go to historical sites um, where things happened once um, and actually have a sort of tactile experience with um, that space and kind of like imagine um, or, or I guess use a combination of sort of imagination and like sensory experience to map, you know, some of what I know or some of what I'm learning onto a really, you know, localized setting. Um, so I like to touch things. I like to smell things. I like to actually sort of think about, yeah, the, the, the embodied experiences um, of these particular sites. So they're actually is in a way in my own research process often um, a really interactive element. Um, yeah. Oh, cool. Uh, well, I'm gonna ask you one more question. It's a two-parter. What was your favorite in-person research experience you had, your favorite story or you know unexpected interaction um, and do you have any of those old iPhone notes still on your phone? And could you read us one? <laughs> I would love to. Um, my favorite experience, um, I have so many. I think one that immediately comes to mind is um, I, wow. Okay, one that immediately comes to mind is, <laughs> Um, I really wanted to go to two sites um, in North Carolina. I wanted to go to Soul City, which was the site of this um, Black-led um, city, uh, but it was a multiracial but, but Black-led city in the 1970s in um, North Carolina, about an outside out of, uh, or an hour outside of Raleigh, um, that had this like actually really extensive, beautiful life and tons of um, civic and government support, um, and then was pretty elaborately um, dismantled by um, a, a wave of conservatism that, that it kind of suffered under in the 80s. Um, and, and I wanted to see the community and visit the community that was still there. And I also wanted to go to Black Mountain College, which is on the other side of the state, um, which uh, is currently owned by Boy Scouts. And so I knew I probably wouldn't be able to actually make my way onto the old campus, but there was a, an interpretive center um, in downtown Asheville. So I, uh, I, could, I could go talk with some historians and curators there and, um, and see if I could make some relationships. And so I wanted to do both of these things and I, and I didn't do enough planning beforehand. And so I, I, I showed up in Seoul City um, and ended up accidentally meeting the husband of um, the granddaughter of the founder of Soul City, 
um, and ended up kind of like being toured through the town and through all of these sort of like um, these remaining kind of monuments to what used to be there. And, um, and he shared a whole bunch about sort of this like horrible um, uh, construction of this, of this prison um, on land that was usurped from Soul City in the 90s. Um, and it was like more, it was better than anything I could have ever planned. This, this experience of showing up, accidentally running into someone uh, and then kind of just being willing to sort of follow um, that moment to, um, to wherever it would take me um, and actually getting this like really deep and intimate experience there. Um, and, and then I ran my ass across the state to Amazing. Asheville, big state showed up at this interpretive center, made not nearly enough effort to contact anyone beforehand, got there. The interpretive center was closed that afternoon because oh. uh, it was Black Mountain Center's annual uh, conference. So all the scholars of Black Mountain College in the entire country um, were gathered down the street and, and so were the curators of, of this museum. But this woman was still in there and she saw me looking in the window and she let me in and we had this whole like deep experience and I got this like really intimate experience of the museum and the collections and then she said because it's the annual conference which I didn't know about she's like every single expert and, uh, and expert scholar on this amazing like radical experimental college that existed in the mountains in the in the um um, outside of Asheville from the 1930s to the 1950s is in town this weekend and we're all gonna go over to the old campus tomorrow we have access so she was like show up at nine so then the next day at nine I got to hang out with with every single person in the United States who's like obsessed oh with Black Mountain College and I got taken to the old campus and got access to the old studio building where like the original geodesic dome was built and had all of this amazing knowledge and information um, and, and, and like personal tours um, through campus. Uh, and what was amazing about that, why are these things interesting to me? Because A, these were two really, really compelling and important sites to me. Um, and, and it reminded me, you know, though I had other field work experiences that were much more like elaborately planned, that there was this reminder that, um, you know, having, releasing, I guess, a little bit of control or expectation made possible a kind of depth of experience and encounter um, be, at each of these places, because it also released these places from needing to deliver something to me, mm -hmm. um, needing, or, or me, you know, my expectation that there was some kind of deliverable, that there was some one thing that I was going to find out or some one person that I was going to schedule an interview with and who was going mm -hmm. to kind of give me what I was looking for. Um, and so those, those two experiences really, really stand out um, extensively because, and they were also, what they also had in common is that they were these places that both didn't exist anymore and did. Mm. <laughs> that like in both, in real ways that like, that I was both in engaging with a kind of like you, 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 utopian experiment, you know, um, of the past, but I was also looking at like real, like, li like living activity that was still continuing to happen in a very different form in both of these places. Mm. Um, That's so interesting. Wow, you're very adventurous. <laughs> um, 
I mean, so I are you. <laughs> I, I mean, it's interesting. I'm, I'm so sad that like, I don't have more time because I'm like, I actually feel like there's a lot that I really you know, relate to in cultish in terms of your own willingness to sort of like, you know, accidentally or on purpose to sort of, you know, A, talk to so many people from different communities, but like wind up inside of you know, like the Church of Scientology HQ oh, yeah. for an extended yeah, yeah. period with an with okay. a, with yeah, a, no. <laughs> curiosity. Right, that's a story. Okay. Yeah. Right. 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 I mean, there's a lot of that, you know, or you know, or your ability to kind of like, you know, track or notice people out in public or at parties or like in passing and to be like, oh yo, this person. This, this this is one of the people, like, this, this well, is the person who knows what I'm talking about. Um, I live in LA and yeah, like show up, and you can't spit without, well, don't spit in COVID times. You can't throw a rock without hitting someone who's been in a cult of some kind. Um, I know we have barely any time, but I do want to hear one iPhone note. <laughs> yeah, um, here here's almost verbatim. Yeah, this is verbatim, like, a note that I took when I was driving back from like the New Jersey coastline back into New York City a number of years ago. Um, and I was just writing, reporting from the present in the first person to myself. Um, Lena and I drive for a long time around the swampy marshland past farmhouses, McMansions, lion statues half moon driveways. Finally, we're out, we're on this road, it's called Phalanx. And I keep telling her, I think we're near an old utopian colony, but I can't see it. All I can see is a dog and a bunch of trees and a bunch of SUVs. And then lost in the grass is a little blue sign North American Phalanx, site of the 1844 Cooperative Agricultural Community, founded by Albert Brisbane and modeled after the philosophy of French socialist Charles Fourier. This communal experiment was a success until it was destroyed by a fire in 1854. Was a success? What does a success mean? How do they know? the maker of this sign. <laughs> That's awesome. And I love how you read it as if you were reading kind of like illegible handwriting, but it was yeah. just an iPhone <laughs> <note>. <laughs> You're like, what was I trying to say? <laughs> no, um, that is incredible. Um, I, yeah, a very, very vivid iPhone note as far as iPhone notes go. Um, thank you for sharing that with us. That was, uh, that yeah, really put you on the spot there. <laughs> my, my pleasure. No, it was a, it was a wonderful invitation. <laughs> it's a beautiful demand. <laughs> and I just, I also just want to say something that I, I really appreciate about getting to be in conversation with you, Amanda, in particular, um, about, uh, or coming from this place of, 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 utopian experimentation and and sort of yeah like analysis of of cults and and I guess something that I really feel a fellow traveler kindred 
with you about is the way that you seem very interested and I think explicitly are in like in sort of freeing uh the word cult from uh, being kind of an evaluative term as something oh, that yeah. means something bad but as like letting it become like a descriptive term um and that Definitely. like in letting it become a descriptive term you know it's from that place that we are actually able to 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 analyze like what may or may not you know what may be good yeah. and what may be bad yeah um, but because that's like, like no doubt there are extremely dangerous and exploitative socio-spiritual groups but the word cult is not enough to be able to determine what those are so yeah yeah we're you know we're both we're both on a quest to I think <laughs> you know uh defend cult's good name you know? <laughs> cult's good. and or or at least like free you know even yeah free for me I think like the word utopia um, at least free it into a descriptive term rather than yeah. an evaluative term. Right, right. Um, not something that means good or bad and not something that means, um, yeah, not something that means like uh, stupid or idiotic or, yeah. or, or specifically the shakers. Um, right. But, but a or term. Or like super fringe. <laughs> or, or super something. fringe, right? It, super impossible, super out there, super pie in the sky but the sort of like desire to bring the word cult or the word utopia into, to, to, to allow it to be a descriptive category um, that then, that we then all get to use to yeah. test out <laughs> our various associations and the quality totally. of our, our, our various belongings to different communities. So yes. I, I, I really appreciate that. that. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> Thank you um, both for such a engaging conversation. It's the kind of conversation I could live inside of because it's it's never ending and it's always branching out into different places in the best way. And you both approached it in such an engaging way too. It was such a pleasure to listen to. And I can't wait for all of our listeners to get to hear it too. Um, for all of our listeners, our guests today were Adrian Shirk and Amanda Montel. And if you are local, you can stop by the store to grab Adrian's new book, Heaven is a Place on Earth, Searching for an American Utopia. And if you are not local, you can always shop online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Amanda. It was, a, it was wonderful. It was an honor to Thank meet you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.